I'm delighted to be here. This is my first time in the state of North Carolina, but as a matter of fact, on my mother's side, I have deep roots in this state. Um, I have ancestors who came over from Germany uh, to um, um, uh, America in 1729, and they moved almost immediately after they landed at Philadelphia to the frontier in the Appalachian uh, Mountains between North Carolina and Tennessee. My great-grandfather was actually born in Mitchell County, uh, North Carolina, and his mother was born in, in Carter County, Tennessee. So I have deep roots in this state on, uh, on more than one side, and I'm delighted finally to be able to come here and, uh, and see this state. And I've not seen very much of it, obviously, but um, I was taking some photographs of the flowering trees outside. And, and where I live in Hamilton, flowering trees are associated with spring. Don't look for them any other time of the year, just spring. But, so I was delighted to see flowering trees here. I'm going to um, talk about how socialism suppresses society. Uh, until last year's presidential election campaign, socialism had long been a nasty word in the American political lexicon. It had been associated with the worst forms of tyranny, especially those of the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China. Thus, many of us were surprised, uh, astonished really, to see a certain United States senator from Vermont gain a dedicated following among especially uh, younger voters while proudly wearing the democratic socialist label. The el their elders would have blanched at the prospect of a socialist president, while they themselves manifested no such fear of an ideological vision whose character and history is without doubt unfamiliar to them. Nevertheless, virtually all Western democracies can boast a sizable socialist party of some sort. Britain and Australia both have their labor parties. France has its Parti Socialiste, and Germany its Sozialdemokratische Partei Deutschlands. Even my own country of Canada has its New Democratic Party, which, while never having governed at the federal level, has managed at times to form the government in half of the country's ten provinces, including Ontario. The United States had a socialist party in the first decades of the 20th century under the leadership of Eugene Debs, who famously campaigned for the 1920 election from a jail cell, and the venerable Norman Thomas, a, president, a Presbyterian minister who stood six times unsuccessfully for the presidency. But the high watermark for the old socialists came in 1932, after which it lost its support base to Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. As a consequence, the United States remains virtually the only country lacking a major political party adhering to the principles of socialism. Well, what exactly is socialism? Definitions vary widely, of course, and it is probably more accurate to speak of socialisms in the plural. Yet, despite the differences, most manifestations of socialism have a number of characteristics in common. First of all, socialism is a powerful vision of economic equality. Uh, the, those are uh, three uh, European socialist leaders from the, uh, the not-too-distant past. Uh, the CCF is uh, what Canada's New Democratic Party used to be called. It was the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation up until 1961. And then there's Eugene Debs, one of his um, uh, political uh, um, campaign posters. And then there's Norman Thomas right there. 
Well, socialism is a, is a powerful vision of economic equality. From the earliest of times, poverty has been a persistent ill, plaguing either a majority or a substantial minority of the human population. Yet, alongside this poverty, some people have enjoyed great wealth, shielding them from the burdens of economic necessity. Kings, nobles, dictators, successful entrepreneurs, and, let's face it, criminals, have lived lives of luxury amid the penury of commoners and ordinary people. Down through the ages, right-thinking people have found such maldistribution of wealth a scandal and have sought to rectify this economic imbalance. The Bible itself recognizes the dangers of wealth, not only to, to the poor, poor, but to the stewards of this wealth, who are likely to let it go to their heads and to forget their dependence on God. The Old Testament law, as codified in the first five books of the Bible, contains numerous provisions for ensuring that the poor would not become a permanent fixture in the life of ancient Israel, most notably in mandating the series of Sabbath years culminating in the great year of Jubilee when all land would return to its original owners. Obviously, the literal practice of Sabbath years and Jubilees is impracticable in an advanced post-industrial economy in which productive property is no longer connected exclusively with agriculture. Consequently, our societies have had to come up with other means of addressing what is euphemistically called the social question, capital S, capital Q. Over the past two centuries, socialists have sought to resolve the issue by extending the logic of democracy into economic life. Democracy gives the vote to all citizens equally, irrespective of their social standing. The manual laborer has the same vote as the graduate of Oxford or Cambridge. The employer has no greater say than his employees. This means that every segment of the citizenry has input into political decision-making or, more likely, in putting in place the public officials charged with making these decisions. Why not extend democracy to the economic realm as well? Indeed, socialism is often called economic democracy. Its followers seeking to break the power of unaccountable um, private concentrations of corporate economic influence and to bend them towards seeking the greater good. This was the argument of, among many others, the late John Kenneth Galbraith, whose book Economics and the Public Purpose had a profound impact on me as a young man. Rather than seeking profit for the few, economic policy should be ordered to the delivery of well-being to the many. At the turn of the last century, Teddy Roosevelt had sought to break up the monopolies of an industrial baronage then thought to dominate the American economy. But Roosevelt was a late liberal, not a socialist. Socialists sought instead to harness the larger corporations in one of a number of ways. The Democratic Socialists in the British Labour Party chose to nationalize the major industries, bringing them under the control of the people's elected representatives in Parliament. Marshal Tito's Yugoslavia, on the other hand, sought to implement something called worker self-management, in which factories would be operated by the workers themselves. Socialist equality would therefore differ from other visions of, of equality. 
Um, for the early liberals, well, I'm putting on the, on the screen here, um, you know, 2 equals 2, obviously, 1 plus 1 equals 2, uh, uh, 2 and a half equals 5, um, uh, 5 halves equals 2.5. Uh, that's mathematical equality. You know, it's, it's fairly straightforward. If you, um, if you know anything about mathematics, I'm not particularly good at mathematics, but it's not too difficult to, uh, to discern equality in, in this respect. Um, but there are other visions of equality as, uh, as well. For the early liberals, um, equality meant the equal enjoyment of individual liberty. But because people are naturally unequal in their gifts and capacities, granting equal liberty inevitably means that some people just let me turn my page here, use their liberty to increase their wealth and influence, while others less able to do so will be left behind. For late liberals, uh, equality means equal opportunity. Yet only in the game of monopoly does everyone literally start out on the same footing. In the real world, someone growing up in one of the prosperous um, neighborhoods of, uh, of, uh, um, of maybe uh, of Raleigh or Durham or Chapel Hill will have more opportunities than someone born in less prosperous Mitchell County uh, where my, my great-grandfather was born. For small-d Democrats, equality means an equal say in, uh, in public affairs, while for socialists, equality means equality of results or absolute economic equality, equality being measured by who has how much at the end of the day. A second shared vision of virtually all socialisms is the emphasis on community over the individual. In contrast to liberalism, with its somewhat lopsided focus on the individual, socialism is collectivist, meaning that the community takes priority over the individual. Which community? Well, generally, generally the economic class of which one is a member. But in effect, this usually translates into the priority of the state over the individual. To be sure, there are anti-statist versions of socialism, some bordering on anarchism, but in practice, where socialist parties are vying for power in a democracy, their policies generally result in empowering the state, possibly at the expense of personal freedoms, a major reason why in North America socialism has come to be associated with tyranny. A third characteristic of socialism is its hostility to private property. As much as possible, property is to be held in common so that it will remain open for the use of everyone. This will presumably eliminate poverty and economic hardship. Many small-scale communities have been established on the basis of common ownership of property, some successful and some not. Monasteries are set up on this principle, as were various utopian communities in the 19th and early 20th centuries. Not far from where I live in southern Ontario, there are two communities of a group called the Brethren of Early Christianity, whose members share their property and their lives, eating together in a common dining room and working industriously for the good of the community. I know of this community because my, one of my father's best friends married the daughter of the founder of this community. This is the sort of arrangement that socialists favor for everyone, everywhere. Yet those communities that have been successful are small enough for genuine affection and care to develop amongst members. 
Whole nations organized on this basis are too large, too impersonal, and they tend to become bureaucratic and oppressive, as in the Soviet Union and its client states, uh, in its client states before the end of the 1980s. Fourth, with socialism's hostility to private property comes an expressed preference for cooperative economic arrangements over competition amongst self-interested individuals. The assumption is that competition is bad because it brings people into conflict with each other. Hence, Canada's Socialist Party was originally called the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation, the old CCF, under its leader, Tommy Douglas, a Baptist minister who became Premier of Saskatchewan in 1944, and then the first federal leader of the New Democratic Party in 1961. Cooperation, socialists generally assume, is an unmitigated good because it brings people together to pursue shared goals. Who could fail to be affected by a vision of ordinary people from every walk of life working together to build a better society in which everyone will prosper? Isn't this obviously better than structuring a work environment that forces people to work against each other to enrich themselves? When posed this way, and of course there are other ways of posing the question as well, these questions must elicit from all right-thinking people a positive response to socialism. Two more characteristics cut more closely to the core of the, um, of the socialist vision, laying bare its um, anthropological assumptions. The first characteristic, and let me just turn around to make sure that I have the right one here, because the screen is a little bit distant that I'm looking at right now. Thus, the, the fifth characteristic is the tacit belief uh, that there is no stable human nature and that consequently human beings can be shaped con to conform to the aims and aspirations of social planners. Now I might say that socialists are not the only one believing this. Uh, many ideologies believe the same thing, whether they're, they're liberals, early liberals, late liberals, whether they're nationalists, whether they're um, uh, uh, maybe anarchists, perhaps uh, people who will call themselves progressives, full stop, may believe this as well. If human beings tend to be self-centered, well then, we simply need to re-educate them and mold them into loyal citizens of the socialist commonwealth, whose primary motive will be to seek the good of the whole. If people remain stubbornly loyal to particular attachments, such as family, church, and neighborhood, then, it is reasoned, we must undertake to alter their convictions at the deepest affective level possible, through whatever means we have at our disposal. If people doggedly defend their own private interests, they must be made to see the error of their ways. Or, as Jean-Jacques Rousseau famously put it in the 18th century, they will be forced to be free. Sixth and finally, socialism posits an alternative redemptive story to that which we find in the scriptures. The Bible is a, uh, a, a grand narrative that tells the whole world's story, beginning with creation and moving on through the fall into sin, to redemption in Jesus Christ, and culminating in the final consummation of the kingdom of God at his return. By contrast, socialism's redemptive narrative bypasses Jesus Christ and offers its own way to salvation. We ourselves will bring about all the blessings of God's promised kingdom 
but on our own terms. This story is most evident in Karl Marx's writings. There is no creation, of course, because it assumes the existence of a creator, which Marx's atheism could not permit him to accept. But there is an original state corresponding to the Garden of Eden. This Marx labels primitive communism, a hypothetical condition in which everyone works together, but without a division of labor. Perhaps this represents something close to the hunter-gatherer societies of prehistoric times, with everyone for foraging for the means of subsistence. For Marx, the counterpart to this fall into sin occurs when the first division of labor is introduced into the productive process. Men and women do different things. Some work with their brains, other with their brawn. This results in society's division into economic classes, which are defined by their relationship to the means of production. This division inevitably, inevitably produces conflict between the classes. And after that point, history takes off with conflict being the, the motive force in the historical process. But eventually, this will come to an end as the final class, the proletariat, or the industrial working class, assumes a messianic role, achieving a victory over the bourgeoisie or the capitalists, thereby ushering in the class of society. Uh, uh, Marx's counterpart to the eschatological vision of God's coming kingdom. Admittedly, not all professed socialists buy into the Marxian story. For most democratic socialists, or social democrats, as many prefer, socialism is sim simply about helping the disadvantaged through public policy. Um, let, me, let me put this on the, on the screen for one moment, and I'll have to stand back and, uh, and read this. This is uh, what would be the end result of the, uh, the class of society. In communist society, where nobody has one exclusive sphere of activity, but each can become accomplished in any branch he wishes, society regulates the general production and thus makes it possible for me to do one thing today and another tomorrow, to hunt in the morning, fish in the afternoon, rear cattle in the evening, criticize after dinner, just as I have a mind, without ever becoming hunter, fisherman, shepherd, or critic. In other words, no division of labor. Um, everybody will become uh, presumably a jack or a jill of all trades. They can do one thing in the morning. I can um, speak about socialism in the afternoon. And I can herd cattle in, uh, tomorrow morning and then in the afternoon. Uh, maybe I can clean latrines or, or do whatever I have a, have a mind to do. And that's the, 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 the communism as, as Marx um, saw it. The counterpart, again, to the eschatological vision that we find in the various books of the Bible, culminating in the return of Christ and the inauguration of his, um, his kingdom in the new heaven and the, and the, the new earth. Well, democratic socialism is, socialism is very different. So there are, there are a number of reforms that um, democratic socialists and social democrats and late liberals and even, even conservatives and people adhering, following other ideologies um, have tried to, uh, to, 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 to bring about. Um, it, it may entail not the nationalization of utilities and heavy industries, but the establishment and maintenance of a welfare state, including such programs as social assistance for the poor, old age pensions, and universal health care. It may further consist of such items as the progressive income tax, protections for workers in the workplace, the minimum wage, and the 40-hour work week. 
um, falling far short of implementing communal ownership of all productive property, such measures have kept social democratic parties in parliaments around the world for more than a century and have given them governing power either alone or in coalition with other political parties. All these things taken individually are good things, I would argue. Socialism has properly made us aware of the economic forces that keep people poor through successive generations. Socialist and social democratic parties have properly championed in their respective countries the rights of workers who are often at a distinct disadvantage with respect to their corporate employers in a market economy. Since the end of the Second World War, virtually every Western democracy has woven a social safety net to prevent people falling through the metaphorical cracks and thus being unable to live out their respective callings securely and healthily. One can justifiably ob observe the influence of the gospel behind such efforts as Christians have always had a heart for the poor. In fact, Eric Nelson has plausibly argued that the recovery in the early, early modern era of ancient Hebrew rabbinic sources uh, 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 produced a fundamental reorientation in political thought in the West, favorable to Republican as opposed to monarchical polities, uh, favorable to public policies, redistributing wealth, remember the year of Jubilee, and even religious toleration. Only a culture formed even in part by the biblical redemptive narrative is likely to contemplate policies to aid the economically disadvantaged rather than to regard poverty as a deserved curse of gods. Of the gods, I should say, the plural. Yet, in evaluating any ideological vision, we must de dig deeper than the policies um, it advocates. Because after all, the welfare state has had broad support in many countries uh, 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 amongst a cross-section of political parties, the, both the conservative and the labor parties in the United Kingdom, the liberal democrats that were in coalition with the conservatives under uh, David Cameron in the early part of this decade, uh, the, uh, the conservatives in Canada, the liberals, the, the new democrats, um, uh, even in the United States, uh, um, uh, much less um, um, uh, extensive welfare state in the United States, but still it has had broad support of both major parties, at least up until, uh, up until relatively frequently. Uh, so the welfare state itself does not necessarily add up to socialism. So looking at policy uh, proposals does not necessarily tell us about the deep roots of a particular ideological vision. Here is where we need to dig more deeply into the redemptive narrative that animates the socialist project. Historically plagued by ter terrible poverty, human beings have long sought liberation from both scarcity and the maldistribution of the world's goods. Yet we know from history that efforts at liberation, no matter which label they bear and which end they seek, so often result in a tyranny much less, much worse than the petty oppressions of the ancien regime. It happened in France, it happened in Russia, it happened in China, it happened in Iran in 1979 after the, uh, the Islamists took over that, that country. Um, indeed, the single-minded pursuit of any goal, however worthy it might be when considered on its own, has a tendency to crush the real world under its feet. If flesh and blood human beings fail to measure up to the goals of the ideology, efforts to transform them will have to be redoubled. And if that doesn't work,
perhaps we will have to eliminate them altogether. As Greta Garbo, yes, the uh, screen actress of uh, the 1920s and the 1930s, as Greta Garbo's Soviet functionary, Ninochka, famously put it in the eponymous 1939 film, the last mass trials were a great success. There are going to be fewer but better Russians. This is a line from a 1939 film. Many important films were made in 1939, including The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind and Claire Booth Looses the Women and Ninochka, which is not remembered as much as it should because anybody who claimed in the 1930s that they didn't know that Stalin was exterminating, exterminating people in Russia, all they need to do is watch that film. There's more than one reference to that. Now, looking back on that, we might disapprove on their trying to draw humor out of this because people were dying in the Soviet Union in the, 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 the millions. And by the time communism had ended uh, almost 30 years ago in most of the world, the numbers of people who were casualties of communism numbered between 85 and 100 million. The vast majority of them dying in the People's Republic of China, simply because China being the largest country in the world in terms of population, there was simply more people to finish off. Mao Zedong may be the, the greatest mass murderer in human history. The 20th century was a bloody century. Don't think of the Mongol invasions, don't think of the Roman conquest of the Mediterranean world. The 20th century uh, outpaced everybody. And it came at the end of the relatively peaceful century between 1815 and 1914 when everybody thought progress was in the air. And everybody thought that peace would come at the hands of the British Empire for my fellow Canadians, or at least those who were, were, uh, 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 were living 100 years ago, or maybe even 50 years ago, believed that, that the British Empire, not 50 years ago, but 100 years ago, that the British Empire was going to usher in a peaceful world with the British Navy uh, policing the seas and uh, putting an end to piracy and so forth. Uh, and it ended. It all crashed in August of 1914. And from that point on up until 1945, and really in China up until 1976 with the death of Mao Zedong, huge numbers of people, scores of millions of, millions of people died in a bloody century. Um, political ideologies consider human beings expendable in the larger cause of implementing their grand vision or as the Dutch political economist Bob Houtsvaart expresses the matter, an ideology subordinates principles to goals. While we may be inclined to conclude that vicious means ought never to be used to accomplish otherwise virtuous goals, the convinced ideologue sees things differently. In this respect, the goal becomes a surrogate god, jealously demanding total loyalty and even human sacrifice if necessary. This turn towards idolatry is true not only of socialism, but of the other secular ideologies seeking to remake the world in their own image. Liberalism champions individual freedom and, in its later forms, the right to choose, seeking to exempt such choices from even social disapproval, much less legal sanctions. 
Nationalism seeks to, li to liberate a particular nation from foreign oppression. Yet it often produces a regime willing to terrorize ordinary people in the interest of its liberating uh, um, efforts. Ethnic Greek nationalists in Cyprus, where my father was born, in the 1950s threatened at least one member of my father's birth family, my aunt, for considering marriage to a Turkish Cypriot who was willing to convert to the Orthodox Church for her, but nevertheless, the terrorists who wanted to unite the island with Greece felt themselves justified in attacking people who might be less than fully enthusiastic about this goal, who our, our family had to bring my aunt over to the United States in 1958 during the guerrilla war in Cyprus because she had been targeted by these terrorists. And, um, so, and my father, um, a Greek Cypriot, his best friend was in fact a Turkish Cypriot. I can tell you stories about them, uh, uh, some rather fascinating stories. They, they both managed to save each other's life, uh, lives at, uh, at various points when they were growing up. Um, so conservatism uh, may be less obviously ideological than its competitors, and at least two professed conservatives, namely uh, Russell Kirk and Gerhard Niemeyer, the latter of whom was one of my professors at Notre Dame, believe that conservatism is in principle anti-ideological. In some measure they are correct, I believe, but, um, 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 and the best of conservatives recognize that um, um, are, are wary of the claims of utopians of all stripes. Nevertheless, conservatives err in assuming that tradition speaks with one voice and are perennially in danger of looting, losing sight of principles that might enable them to assess their own traditions in a discerning way. Because after all, various traditions conflict with each other. And we have to assess, well, which traditions do we uphold? Which do we allow to fade out or get rid of completely? But let's return to socialism. The title of this talk is How Socialism Suppresses Society. How indeed does it manage to do this? Um, um, uh, uh, after all, socialists regularly sing Ralph Chaplin's 1915 labor song, Solidarity Forever, with fervor and appear to value the horizontal ties that bind them together in their struggle for justice. In the former Soviet Union, everybody called each other tovarish or comrade, which eschewing all titles of honor that might set people apart from or above others. Yet the irony of Soviet Russia is that far from strengthening horizontal ties of solidarity, comradeship amongst ordinary Russians, the party effectively eroded such ties, making people dependent on the party alone in virtually every area of life. In the darkest days of the Soviet Union, ordinary Soviet citizens were, were afraid of each other for fear of being turned in to the NKVD, later the KGB, the, uh, the, the secret police. Um, even in the, in, in the days of st Soviet stagnation after Leonid Brezhnev had come to power between 1964 and, uh, and 1982, uh, maybe those were the best days of the Soviet Union, even though it was on the verge of, um, of decline. At that, at that point, uh, people were in a patron-client relationship with a party. If you wanted to get things done, you wouldn't organize it and get it done yourself. You would go to somebody in the party, and they would somehow try to see that things got done, probably not very successfully. So, tovarish, comrade, it was, a, it was an empty title. It had no meaning, because everybody was dependent on the vertical relationships with the party, not the horizontal ties of solidarity. Now, of course, um, um, very few professed socialists today would lionize the old Soviet Union, 
um, whose failure brought into, into the open the considerable flaws of Marx, the Marxist-Leninist experiment. Um, it would be unfair fair to judge socialism by its worst manifestation. Nevertheless, socialism, like the other ideologies that have shaped the political landscape for more than two centuries, rests on assumptions that are profoundly anti-social, despite its avowed exaltation of society. How so? We need to remember that our society is not a single entity and certainly not a responsible agent. Um, it is a complex pattern of relationships and relationships and communities which have evolved over the ages into their present form. We are not a tribe with a single chieftain calling the shots for everyone in every activity. We are marriages, families, schools, business enterprises, labor unions, church congregations, political communities, art cooperatives, amateur choral societies, little league baseball teams. Keep going. Everything. You know, you can't, you can't number all of the communities that our society is, is made up of. Each of these communities has its own internal structure with its associated authoritative offices. Within the state, for example, each of us bears an office of some sort. It may be president, representative, senator, queen, prime minister, citizen. For the ma vast majority of us, our partici participation in the state is limited to, to our citizenship. Yet to be a citizen is to exercise a significant office with certain attendant political responsibilities, most notably to obey the laws, to stay informed on public affairs, and of course to vote. Um, in the classroom, the instructor has authority, but so do the students. The two authoritative offices of instructor and student are not the same, and the relationship between them is not symmetrical, certainly not egalitarian. The instructor sets the course requirements which the students are obligated to fulfill. All the same, everyone in the classroom, in whatever capacity, has an authoritative office worthy of respect. More to the point, almost nobody is likely to confuse the classroom community with, say, a family, a church, a parliamentary body, or a trade union local. Each of these is a distinctive social form with its own proper structure and purposes. And that's one of the things that I, that I uh, um, emphasize in my second book, We Answer to Another, Authority, Office, and the Image of God, is that we, each of us, in every community that we are part of, has an authoritative office of some sort. So in the classroom, I'll ask my students, um, well, who has authority in the classroom? And they'll point to me. You, Dr. Koizis, you, know, you are the one with the authority. And I say, yes, but you have it too. As students, you have a certain authoritative office. You are a student in this classroom. That comes with authority. Authority is not just authority over something, but it is authority within a particular communal context. We have authority in the broad sense over the rest of God's creation, which uh, is in the Reformed tradition. This is known as the cultural mandate in, uh, at the end of the first chapter of, of Genesis that we have a certain mandate to form culture, to, uh, to fill the earth and, and subdue it. And, uh, and that is authority. And that authority is further dispersed into a variety of authoritative offices. And that's one of the, the key points that I'm making in my, in my second book. Um, I want to um, jump ahead uh, to, to, to some degree. So, um, is there a term for all this complexity? Different traditions call it different things. For example, in Roman Catholic circles, inspired by the teachings of recent popes from Leo XIII to the end of the 19th century up to the current Pope Francis, the term subsidiarity is used. 
Under the principle of subsidiarity, society is viewed as a hierarchy, each of whose levels bears authority. Insofar as the lower agents in the hierarchy are capable of achieving the particular goods for which they are responsible, the higher agents refrain from interfering. However, if the lower agents mess up, shall we say, then the higher agents are justified in stepping in, setting matters aright, and, uh, and then withdrawing once they have done so. Yet in no case should the higher agents, capped by the state of the summit, simply take over the other communities within its jurisdiction. In the Reformed tradition, following the great Dutch, um, well, there we have Pope Leo, Pope Leo XIII, and he was Pope from 1878 up until 1903 is, is when, when he died. Um, he was an old man when he became Pope. Everybody thought he was going to be a caretaker Pope, ended up serving for much longer than anybody thought he would, dying shortly after the, um, uh, the beginning of the, of the 20th century, and is one of the key um, proponents of Catholic social principles. In Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic circles, Catholic social principles are still discussed at the present day. Leo XIII was the one to apply them to the industrial era. In the Reformed tradition, uh, following the great polymath and statesman Abraham Kuyper, this complexity is known as sovereignty in its own sphere or sphere sovereignty, a wonderfully flat and inelegant term that simply means that the state is the state, the church is the church, the business enterprise is the business enterprise, and so forth. In recent decades, this has been, um, this has been labeled differentiated responsibility, uh, by people such as Jim Skillen and others. I don't think he was the one to invent the term. Uh, I think it was actually, uh, there's a Dutch word that was used in the late 1970s, but he adopted it in English. Um, societal um, plura, plura, uh, associational diversity that is associated with Richard Mao, a retired president of, um, of Fuller Seminary in California. Sandra Grafeun, who is a professor retired now at the Free University of Amsterdam. Um, societal pluriformity is a, is a term that I use in, in my books. A second term, the pluriformity of authorities, which I use in my, in my second book as well. To, um, to talk about the, um, uh, the uh, um, uh, the, the sheer variety of so, social formations that we are embedded in as those who are created in God's image, living not as atomized individuals, but in, in, a, in a society. Sphere sovereignty differs from subsidiarity in that the individual that it claims to account, the society it claims to account for is not hierarchical in nature. So let's go back to, um, to here. Here we go. God relates to the various individuals and communities, not through so-called mediating structures, but directly. God confers authority on each sphere, not through the intermediary of church or state, but immediately. This theoretical account of society has obvious roots in the Reformation's understanding of the priesthood of all believers. As those made in God's image, redeemed in Jesus Christ, and empowered by the, by the Holy Spirit, we have direct access to our God, who does not hide behind the walls of institutions, but is constantly close to each of us in everything we do. In other words, Kuiper is at one with Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Bootser, and the other reformers in articulating not only his soteriology, Christology, or ecclesiology, but also his sociology. We do well to remember this as we celebrate next month the 500th anniversary of the, of the start of the Reformation. I don't know if any um, 
celebrations are going to be um, held at, at the seminary, but on the, the eve of All Saints Day, 31st of October, when maybe some of our children might be out collecting goodies from, uh, from our neighbors, we will be um, observing the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther um, nailing his 95 theses to the, um, to the, cas the, 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 the castle church of, um, of Wittenberg.